profits and particularly shareholder profits are really wasteful economic activity. And so clawing that back is, you know, not just to stick it to them, um, but that's actually better for the whole economy. And, you know, the story of the economy through the neoliberal era has been the shift from wages to profits. Employers don't pay you what you're worth. They pay you what you can negotiate. And we saw a great example of that recently in the American economy. Yes, we did. The UAW strike. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. One of the things you like to say, Nick, is uh, employers don't pay you what you're worth. They pay you what you can negotiate. And we saw a great example of that recently in the American economy. Yes, we did. The UAW strike was probably the best example of that that we've seen, I guess, in a really long time. Yeah. Big, big wins for auto workers uh, recently. And it's funny because when it it started, there was a lot of uh, criticism. Oh, they're they're, they're asking for too much. They're reaching too far. But they really won most of their main objectives. That's right. Yeah. And uh, they deserve to because... Profits at the auto companies uh, have gone sky high as wages have either gone down or flattened. And I think it's really exciting what they accomplished and uh, probably uh, will have a, you know, a positive effect on other sectors and other workers. And a great example to uh, workers in other sectors who are either looking to organize or who are already unionized and looking to strike. Yeah. And, uh uh, there are gains to be out there and concessions to be reversed and uh, opportunities to be won. Absolutely. And today, uh, we get to talk to somebody who's an expert in all of this. Kate Bond, an economist and researcher, serves as director of research for WorkRise, uh, which is an action network hosted by the Urban Institute, um, has studied these relationships, uh, labor and business, and uh, has followed this very, very carefully. So, you know, with that, Goldie, I think we should talk to Kate. Hi, I'm Kate Vaughn. I'm a labor economist and research director at WorkRise, which is a research to action network hosted by the Urban Institute. Um, And people can check out our blog, Working Knowledge, on WorkRiseNetwork.org. Well, uh, Kate, thank you so much for joining us. Sounds like you have been deeply involved in the UAW strike and uh, wrote about it in a recent CNN op-ed. So tell us about how you've been following this and, you know, just tell our listeners about what you're thinking. I mean, it's really exciting to follow. So I know a lot of folks listening to your show are probably, you know, already pretty aware that um, the big three automakers, GM, Ford, and Stellantis, went on strike this past fall and had big wins in their contract. But taking a step back, sort of my interest in it and how much I'm following it is part of this bigger economic context of rising income inequality, declining labor share of value, these sort of big long-term labor market trends that have been really bad for workers. And what this strike and particularly the success of the strike represents in pushing back against those long trends and perhaps, you know, moving the other direction. So just 
because not everybody followed it carefully. Just give us the 60-second version about what happened and what the outcome was. So uh, the UAW was up for contract renewal with the big three automakers in the U.S., which are GM, Ford, and Stellantis. Stellantis representing who? Just so everybody knows. Chrysler. That's, yeah. that's a good, sorry. Yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, they represent no Chrysler. problem. Yeah. That's pretty key. Yeah. Um, that's a good example of how I'm, I'm too into the weeds yeah. um, <laughs> that I'm using these other names. And so, uh, you know, I think the UAW leveraged a really key economic moment of the labor market being quite tight um, and very healthy and workers um, have, facing a lot of job openings elsewhere. And because of that, they were able to ask for really strong demands in this contract. And when those demands were not taken seriously by the big three automakers, um, what they then started was a strike, and in particular, a rolling series of strikes, which was a really cool tactic um, that Sean Fain, the president of UAW, undertook, where different auto plants would go on strike at different times. And it's really left those companies in a place where they could not necessarily predict where there would be work stoppages on what timeline. And that ended up really putting them sort of they were on their heels um, facing the UAW. Um, and through this strike, they were able to secure some really significant gains in their contracts. It was sort of Ford and Stellantis reached deals sooner, and then GM was the final one to reach deals. And what they had were things like big wage increases. They sort of tend to be at the top of the scale around 20 to th- 27 to 30% over the life of the contract. But other really key factors there were things like raising the wages huge amounts of the lower lower paid workers, particularly things like temp workers. Um, so they have no more tiered employment, which is a tactic that had happened particularly for UAW workers, but sort of broadly through the Great Recession. When there was a union contract, the proposal for the company would be, how about we give benefits to the long-term employees, but we don't to the more recent employees. And that set up this tier that really, really gutted unions' power. They reversed that. There's no more tiered contract. There's a shorter timeline to get to the top wage band. A big piece of this contract um, was uh, cost of living adjustments. And so as inflation goes up, um, and cost of living goes up, workers' wages go up alongside it. Um, automatically. And then the last thing I'll say, automatically, which is huge. I mean, we could talk about that more and we probably should yeah. talk about that more. Um, but the last thing I'll say too is um, it also includes new production facilities, um, in particular um, the uh, battery operating cell, yeah, operating battery cell manufacturing facilities will be covered under the UAW contract. So far, that includes. Altium Cells, um, who has one plant that is jointly operated with GM, um, and they're opening two more plants soon. So that is not only just bringing benefits to the UAW members that already exist, but expanding UAW coverage when the auto sector itself changes. Great. And this is really big because, you know, whatever bumps are in the way, this shift to electric vehicles is real and it's happening and there's mm-hmm. there's nothing that really can stop it over the next decade. Exactly. I mean, there's a lot of things about this contract. Um, one of the reasons I'm so excited about it is a lot of ways it feels like union contracts and labor law generally is sort of you know stuck in the past, and that has mm-hmm. led it, made it hard for unions to make big gains. This contract was very forward looking, both to new sectors where there is growth, and then also to be able to account for e- coming economic conditions. Um, I think that's going to be pretty big. It's interesting you say that because when I looked at it. Again, I'm, uh, I'm not, this is not my area of expertise, but what I saw was reversing a lot of the concessions they, the, the auto workers made in the wake of the Great Recession, the financial collapse that was devastating. And it's particularly 
the multi-tiered wage structure, which is a, a tactic that has been used to destroy unions for a couple decades. Um, yeah. But it's more than that. It's more than just winning back these concessions. It's uh, structured with an eye towards the future. I think that's that's true. Um, so I think winning back the concessions is obviously very important because it expands the the coverage and the benefits of unionization. But I think making sure that when these companies engage in new types of activities like electric vehicles, that's part of it. Um, and the cost of living adjustment, um, which I believe they did have in historic contracts. But again, I think that that does help it at least navigate the future. And how about hours per week? One piece that they did not win, um, and this is what the subject of my CNN piece, is they did not win the four-day work week. Um, that was a demand of theirs. That being said, you know, I think that was a really bold demand. And it was exciting that they demanded it. I think that sort of demonstrates their power that they even asked for it. Um, but they did not get a four-day work week. The four-day work week is a. It's exciting that it was even on the table. So I don't want to diminish the fact that they didn't get it. But what we know about manufacturing is that they have really, really long work hours. So manufacturing workers have higher average work hours than other workers across the entire country. Um, they work, you know, over forty hours a week, where most other workers are working in low thirty hours a week on average. And so, at least what this does, why they may not be giving to the four-day work week, it at least helps those workers because it has raised wages so significantly um, that they don't necessarily have to take on as much overtime and face overwork that way. They're less right. likely to take on dual job holding. So there's still benefits despite not having one that four-day work week. Yeah, great. You mentioned earlier that the UAW took advantage of you know our historically tight labor markets right now to help win these gains. We're also in a period the past couple of years of rising popular support for unions, something which we, we haven't seen in quite some time. How much of it was public opinion that helped them win? Because certainly the, the coverage of the strike was, was pretty positive. I'm sure that plays a role. You know, it can't be the only thing, but you're right. Two thirds of Americans say they support unions. That is the highest it's been since the 1960s. The first time a president has ever visited, a, a, an active president has ever visited a strike. Those are pretty big. I'm sure that plays a role on these companies, their pressure. And, you know, another thing to keep in mind here is that they were saying they couldn't afford these concessions to the workers while they were also bragging about their historic profits um, on earnings calls, which I think is a trend we've seen generally speaking. We know that there's really high profits. Um, and so I think that public pressure, the bad how bad it looks um, that people are supporting unions probably did play a role um, in those companies, you know, giving into the union demands. But the biggest factor was, of course, striking and just making it so they couldn't operate their business. Yeah. Kate, I don't mean to put you on the spot here with a, a numbers question uh, that we didn't prepare you for, but how much of their profit did the automakers give up in order to deliver these concessions? It's a de minimis amount, isn't it? I, I don't remember the exact amount, but you're right. I, I mean, I think automakers have been making really high profits. It tends to be a little bit volatile when I was looking at the numbers, yeah. but it tends to, it's still quite high in the billions. Um, and I think the key part here too is that there's nothing about capitalism that says that companies deserve to make extreme profits. In fact, no. you know, mainstream economic theory says that profits should be pretty minimal. They're basically just the wages of capital. And anything above that is wasteful economic activity because otherwise that money should be spent in workers' pockets, which they spend in the economy. It should be spent investing in new things. So profits and particularly shareholder profits are really wasteful economic activity. And so clawing that back is, you know, 
not just to stick it to them, um, but that's actually better for the whole economy. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, the story of the economy through the neoliberal era has been the shift from wages to profits in the country, right? Uh, I mean, the last numbers I saw was that wages used to be something like 52% of GDP, and now it's like 46% mm-hmm. or 45%. Profits used to be 5 or 6% of GDP, now it's 11 or 12 And that, you know, whatever it is, that trillion and a half dollars of profits doesn't need to be profits or have to be profits. It's profits because powerful people prefer it to be profits, (laughs) right? Exactly. So, I mean, like the technical term is the declining labor share of income, which, you know, it's not very interesting sounding, but, you know, there's, that's not good for the economy, broadly speaking, um, to have a declining labor share of income. The other thing that you argued in, in your CNN piece was that this contract was good for all workers. Can you reflect on that? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot of research that shows that there is a big union spillover effect. Um, part of what I argued in that piece is that clawing back the ability of companies to make those outside profits, force their workers to work really long hours versus that big trend of the declining labor share of income. But it's even more than that, too. You know, we know from good research that unions have big positive wage spillovers. Um, So, for example, there's research by Patrick Denise and Jake Rosenfeld, where they look at how much the decline of unionization has impacted wages overall. And they do, you know, good research where they account for everything else you can account for. Um, They're saying this is not just about changes in skills demand. This is not just about the decline of manufacturing in the U.S. This is not about competition. It is just the sheer fact that unions have declined is part of why non-union workers make even less now. Um, And so especially probably in those places, those localities that have a big auto manufacturing presence like Detroit, this will increase the wages of other employers because they have to compete. And the benefits don't just end there. Another paper I really like is by Paul Freimer and Jacob Grumbach, finding that unions reduce racial resentment among members, their members. And so, you know, not only it, what happens is union white union members are much less likely to express racial resentment. Um, when white workers join a union, they're less likely to express racial resentment. And then that lasts even after they're no longer a union member. And so just the presence of unions, people cycling in and out of unions jobs can reduce that racial resentment. And that can lead to real impacts for people. Those, you know, white union members um, or white former union members are more likely to say that they support policies like affirmative action or other policies that are specifically designed to help black Americans. And we saw this impact on non-union workers pretty directly in the rest of the auto industry in in the weeks following mm-hmm. these contracts, these non-union automakers announced a series of wage hikes. Yeah, exactly. How much, I know the UAW has announced big plans for organizing these non-union plants. Did these raise hikes, were those preemptive? Did they head off this organizing? Or do you think there's still a shot for the UAW to spread to some of these other uh, manufacturers? Well, I'm glad those workers have those increases. Um, And I I do think that was likely part of the intent was probably to stay above unionization. It might also just be to be able to recruit workers. Um, It's harder to recruit workers if there's another union option. You know, I'm not a political scientist, but I would say given the rhetoric of the UAW, um, particularly their president, Sean Bain, I don't think they're planning on backing off. I think they're planning on still going harder. And, you know, on the other side of it, there's lots of evidence that shows that unions aren't necessarily bad for companies. Um, and so 
now we're in a place where it might be easier for the UAW to potentially organize because they could say, you know, our master agreement is now closer to the wage levels you're offering. It's not a big change in your how you operate your business because yeah. you've already preemptively raised those levels. So, you know, there could be there could be a benefit to it as well. It could make it easier to unionize. Is this a model for labor in general or is there something unique about the auto industry? My concern is that I mean, I do think this is a really good thing. My concern is looking at sort of broader business structures across the economy and where else we see union activity. Are those places similar to the UAW? Can they leverage the same types of tools that the UAW can? Um, I think that could be a little bit harder because UAW workers tend to be direct employers of large corporations. Um, And so when we think about other types of jobs that there's been activity, um, it's maybe independent contractors who aren't direct employees it could be at franchise establishments who, so the bargaining would not be directly with the big company, but the franchise owner or really small diffuse workplaces, like all that Starbucks organizing, which is really exciting. Um, obviously a huge number of wins for, through the National Labor Relations Board to have union representation, um, but they're really small diffuse workplaces. Um, and that makes it, a, you know, the UAW tactics a little bit harder to leverage. One of the things I guess you wish is that you know, when the UAW did these concessions during hard times, there would have been a clause that said, and when the good times come back, we claw all this stuff back. But apparently Mm -hmm. that wasn't negotiated. It feels like you want to write a contract so that the better the company does, the better everybody does, right? And for the long term, right? Where you don't have to renegotiate this every three years or five years or whatever it is. We're, you know, if the company uh, does better, then th- that betterness is shared in a reasonable way so that you don't have strikes and you don't have people pissed off. Well, but Nick, how are you going to share profits with workers um, when you need to share them with shareholders? Yeah, well, I mean, that is that is the problem, I guess. But I mean, he, those those, sto- those stock buybacks don't grow on trees. They come that's at, a, true. Yeah. at a cost, yeah. Nick. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, but do you think there's any hope for that, th- those kinds of arrangements? I think, you know, there is... Other types of ways to give workers sort of that power. It was, you know, not necessarily part of this UAW contract, but I think it's become more of the discussion, at least in U.S. labor policy. And those are things like co-determination. And so that would be putting workers on the boards of these organizations. And so when we talk about stock buyback plans, what that looks like, how companies are thinking about what to do with their profits, if you have worker representation on boards, that's one way to affect those changes. And so that is one way to do that. Um, I'm also really interested in wage boards. And so that's maybe not necessarily a union contract per se, but that is where we have things like in California in the fast food sector, where we have worker representatives, employer representatives, and then also government representatives um, who are able to look at the bigger picture of what's going on in a whole sector, what's going on in the whole labor market and setting wages based on that, rather than it just being, you know, bargaining one-off every four, you know, three to four years at a table between an employer and worker representatives. In a way, isn't a UAW contract a kind of sectoral bargaining in that you settle with Ford and everybody else has to follow suit? I mean, that's the way they they, they used to run these strikes. They'd strike against one automaker and uh, then, you know, get their contract and everybody else would follow. It seems it'd be more efficient just to skip the strikes entirely and go to some sort of wage board for the industry. 
It, it probably would be more efficient. I mean, I, I think there's still something about a strike that is a way for workers to really leverage their power. Um, I don't think, you know, in, in my perspective, I think, you know, it's not a question of getting rid of the strike, but maybe minimizing the length of it, having them ha- happen less often. But it's definitely something that needs to exist as a tool in the toolbox. Mm-hmm. But I think you're right. So when we take something like um, these big three automakers, I mean, they're called the big three. Their their colloquial title denotes that they are a big part of the market in the U.S. Um, and so when you have a, an agreement with the three of them that are you know pretty similar, some differences, that is essentially becomes you know a sector wide agreement. This happens in a couple other places that are similar. I used to work for the union SEIU Local 32BJ, which is a building services union. And in New York City, it's sort of similar. Um, there's a couple really big companies, maybe four of them, um, and they negotiate for a master agreement. They have one representative called the Real Estate Advisory Board that negotiates a master agreement with the union. In that master agreement, the big companies take on, and then maybe there's a couple small riders when smaller companies join that master agreement. But in essence, it is a sectoral bargaining model, and I think the UAW is kind of similar. Yeah, it works that way in the um, with supermarkets in the grocery industry with the unionized uh, supermarkets. They one chain and will sign the contract and the other one will follow. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it can be that. I like the model with 32BJ in New York because they have an employer representative that mm-hmm. negotiates on behalf of multiple employers. Um, so when you have multi-employer bargaining, that I think is a, a very strong way to sort of yeah. get worker benefits across the sector. And then also show us that sectoral bargaining works in the United States. Um, the United States is unique um, to really focus on this sort of typically establishment level bargaining. That's not how it has to be. It's not something about collective bargaining that has to be done that way. It's certainly done differently in different countries. Um, and I think this at least shows that it is possible to do that in the United States. So how can policymakers encourage more of this and support more of this? That's a key question. Um, I think we also know that it's not just worker collective action. We actually need institutional support for it to be effective. And the current makeup of labor law and how a lot of it is enforced is not that helpful to workers. The sort of gold standard would be something like passing the PRO Act, um, which is the Protecting the Right to Organize Act. And that has a whole suite of policies to make it easier for workers to unionize. I think when we think about smaller scale or easier to lift ways to help workers unionize. I think there's still room for the NLRB to do things like stop captive audience meetings. So those meetings where workers are compelled to sit in a meeting and hear anti-union propaganda. And so I think there's some small marginal ways that we can support the right for workers to organize through cracking down on union busting, through protecting workers from retaliation. But broadly speaking, I think if we want an environment that where institutions support union workers' ability to organize a union if they want to, it's going to have to be a big overhaul of how we do it through the PRO Act. Um, and that's where I feel you know, a little more pessimistic than I'd like to be because I know that it is hard to pass big sweeping legislation right now. It's hard to pass little insignificant legislation yeah. right yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Kate, a couple of final questions. So first, the benevolent dictator question. So if, it was, if you were in charge of policy, uh, what would you do? How would you how would yeah, you make no, no political constraints? Yeah. I mean, the big picture, if I could just, you know, wave a wand and, and pass the Pro Act, that would be part of it. Um, I think that'd be a big one. If it was simpler things, not the sort of big, huge bill, it might be things repeal Taft-Hartley, which was that 1947 mm-hmm. law that made it harder for workers to organize. Um, I do think that is sort of it, it was a prescient law. It really paved the way for declining unionization, even as early as 1947. I would get rid of that. 
it would raise NLRB fines and fees. There's evidence that shows that companies just don't have any incentive to comply with the National Labor Relations Act because the fees are so low. So even if you get caught, why not why not break the law because that it's so low? Do the fines and fees have to be uh, changed legislatively? They do. Okay. Yeah. For both the National Labor Relations Act and the Fair Labor Standards Act, it has to be fines and fees have to be changed legislatively. That's a piece of the PRO Act. And then the final thing I think I would do is having just cause employment in the country. Um, and so that would say that employers have to have a justifiable reason to fire workers. Um, right now, what we have is at-will employment. Fire, employers can fire you at any time for any reason other than some legally protected reasons, like they can't fire you if you have a baby or if you're a Black worker. But if we had um, just cause employment, that protects workers against retaliation. And I think that's huge. Um, if you can't retaliate against workers when they organize or they engage in collective action, that really emboldens and protects those workers so that they can do that. They, they can ask for what they deserve. Fabulous. And, and the one final question, why do you do this work? That's a great question. Um, I... I have a long origin story about how I started doing this work, um, but I think it really comes down to, you know, when I started studying economics in college, it was clear to me people's jobs, their work is a fundamental way that they engage in the broader world. Um, it's how they support themselves. It's how they support their families. It's a big part of their social life and their well-being. It just seems like making jobs better is a key to making people's whole lives better. Um, and so, you know, upon that realization at age 19, I thought I want to work as an economist for labor. Um, and I've been doing that for 20 years now. Good for you. It's a great answer. Thank you for me. Thank you for coming on, Kate. Thank you so much for reaching out to me about this. It was exciting to talk about. Well, that conversation, Goldie, just really centers this whole fundamental problem in the American economy, uh, this shift of money from working people to profits and owners of capital that's occurred that we've characterized a jabillion different ways. Mm -hmm. uh, the $50 trillion transfer of income from the bottom 90% to the top 1%, $2.5 trillion a year, um, the decline of labor as a percentage of GDP from in the 50s to in the 40s that's accomplished as as the as the percent of profits has largely doubled uh, again what's what's I think really important for people to recognize is that there is no reason for that other than it's the preference of the powerful <laughs> right like right. corporate profits you know make a certain group of people very very happy they make Wall Street very happy and they make the owners of the businesses and the executives at the top of the business is very happy, but they are not generally better for the economy overall. They're not a sign of increasing efficiency. They're not a sign of forward progress. They're not a sign of better products. They're not a sign of happier, you know, a better economy. All they are is just a, a sign that the people at the top have more power and the people at the bottom have less. And you see this and uh, it's, it's really fascinating with this strike how easy it was in the end for the automakers to cave, not just the unionized auto workers, but the non-unionized right. auto workers, the, the right. foreign manufacturers who have plants here, who immediately followed suit after the strike was settled uh, by raising wages for their workers without a strike. And what it showed right. you was that the, the current low wage structure uh, that we've built up over the past few decades was not some sort of objective 
uh, economic reality, like, oh, no, we just can't afford to pay workers this no. much anymore. They could have afforded to pay them more all the time and just right. chose of course, not to. Not to. Right. Exactly. And what's, what's important here, and I think Kate brought this out a couple times, is that there is a long history to this. We know that as unionization in the United States has declined, so did wage wage growth. Wage growth slowed as uh, unionization declined. And we saw this decline over the past 40 years from about 20% of private sector workers to about 8% of private sector workers. And that correlates exactly with this wage stagnation of the neoliberal era. And none of this was an accident. She brought up Taft-Hartley, and we didn't go into what it is. But at its core, Taft-Hartley, which was passed with that Republican Congress during the Truman administration. It was a big F you to the New Deal. That was That's what it was supposed to be. And this yeah. is what allowed for uh, states to adopt so-called right-to-work legislation. And what right-to-work means is, oh, if your employer is represented by a union, you get all the benefits of being a union worker, but you don't have to pay union dues. It's an anti-social act that allows people to selfishly opt out, to not participate in the union, to not pay their dues while still benefiting from it. And what that does is it weakens the ability of unions to organize. So where so-called right to work is passed, and if you are uh, an employee in a union workplace, you don't have to pay dues to the union to help support those negotiations. What that does is it, it undermines unions always everywhere, really effectively. And it was intentional at the time. She mentioned that it was it was far-seeing. It was part of a multi-decade plan to undermine organized labor in the United States. And it worked. We started to see the decline in unionization not long after that, as state after state, particularly in the South, mostly in the South, mostly in the old Confederacy, adopted right-to-work legislation. And that's why you had these unionized plants in places like Michigan and these non-unionized plants. It's where the foreign manufacturers go into the South, into these right-to-work states where they don't have to have union workers. And it's really exciting to see uh, a contract like the one we had, a strike like the one we had with UAW, not just win Uh, new contracts for unionized workers, but when significantly higher wages, in some cases we're talking about like 30% increases for non-unionized auto workers. It's a big reversal and a big step towards reversing this uh, upward redistribution of wealth and income we've seen over the past 40, 45 years. No, you're absolutely right, Goldie. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, if we want to have an economy where everyone benefits, we're going to have to straighten all this stuff out. It just has to be addressed. And, and again, that 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 lesson, the your words of wisdom that I mentioned at the top, that employers don't pay you what you're worth; they pay you what you can negotiate. There's a corollary to that, which we we've seen again and again, which is employers don't pay you what they can afford to pay you; they pay you what you negotiate. And it was very easy for the auto work, the automakers to assign this contract, uh, maintain high profits. I don't, I haven't seen any of them announcing that they're cutting their, uh, their stock buyback plans, uh, after signing this contract. And we also don't see the, you know, oh, oh, 
you know, it's just going to drive inflation in a competitive market. You know, maybe yeah. profits will go down a little bit. That's what it means to have an efficient market. By the way, if we believed right. in markets, uh, the profits yeah. wouldn't be this high. It's obviously right. an uncompetitive market when they're right. able to uh, uh, maintain profits at this high level for so long. That's right. So you know, markets at work here again. Once again, we're pro more pro market than the uh, so-called uh, <laughs> uh, the free know, marketers. Yeah, free marketeers. Yeah. If you want to read more from Kate. Uh, we will provide some links in the show notes. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.